Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with a very tired and frustrated Will Sloan. <laughs> and today it's a very special episode, because we're going to be talking about Paul Gross. Ugh. And you're probably like, who is Paul Gross? Who, should I know who he is? Is this important? And I gotta say, we're gonna be talking about Paul Gross, but we're also gonna be talking about Canadian cinema. And I don't think there's anyone more recognizable that says Canadian cinema today than Paul Gross. What about Adam McGoyan? I'm, what about David Cronenberg? That is making movies right now that people care about, what about that, that say Xavier, Xavier Dolan. Uh, he's Quebec. That's not part of Canada, is oh, it right, right. now? I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and the first question I have to ask right off the bat is, Will... What the hell is Canadian cinema? Well, you know, it's like the Supreme Court said about pornography. I know it when I see it. <laughs> when I watched a whole bunch of Paul Gross movies uh, for this podcast, I also watched a bunch of Canadian films. <laughs> and looking and reading about it, people usually think that Canada... You didn't even you didn't watch good Canadian films either. You watched Score Hockey Musical and you watched Gunless. You watched <laughs> The Dregs. <laughs> I watched Cold Comfort that Paul Gross was also in. Okay. And Slings and Arrows, which is okay. another Paul Gross that, production. That's supposed to be good. And, I mean, when I think of Canadian cinema, I think of kitchen sink dramas, <laughs> documentaries, animation, and quaintness. Kind of like, you know, they want to step on anybody's toes. Also, homework. Because that's what everybody <laughs> feels that Canadian cinema is. It's stuff that you have to watch. Usually in class, like, when the teacher doesn't want to do any kind of work, they put on, like, the Terry Fox story or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are many Canadian films I like. Uh, I just saw one uh, last week by Don Owen called Nobody Waved Goodbye from the 60s. And that one is actually interesting because it stems from the fact that Don Owen uh, got the money from the NFB to make it. And he actually was commissioned to make a 30-minute film about teenage delinquency. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I'm just going to make a feature-length film instead and not tell anyone until after it's done. And it's a beautiful kind of semi-improvised, uh, yeah, kitchen sink drama that feels very loose and spontaneous, feels kind of like that kind of DIY cinema that's happening in Toronto now. People like Kazakh, Radwanski, and that sort of thing. For people that are listening from America, the UK, some African country. <laughs> sure. <laughs> all our, all our fans from across the world. Canada pretty much stems from an organization called the NFB, which stands for the National Film Board, which came to fruition in 1939. Oh, wow, you're throwing some dates on me. <laughs> and it was pretty much defined by a guy named John Grierson, mm -hmm. who came from Britain. And many people say he's the one who coined the term documentary. He's the one who, if you're taking a documentary class at school, you have to suffer through the first four weeks of boring shit before you can get to the good stuff. Hear that? I'm a populist too, just like Paul Gross. What basically happened is that the Canadian government decided that films are going to be educational <laughs> and they're going to show people what the life of Canada is across the country. And then we found out that Canada is really boring. <laughs> like, <laughs> But it still led into nothing but documentaries and animation. Mm -hmm. It was those two things. So the animation was pretty good mm -hmm. the cat came back <laughs> i love that <laughs> the cat came back Very you would nice see day. that why was that so everywhere i don't understand i well i think it's because like when we were kids that was the one canadian thing that any kid would like <laughs> which was an animated video where a guy continued to try to kill a cat it's yeah you know, it's really funny i think it holds up <laughs> and from there that's basically cemented canadian cinema for a long time which is 
that it's government funded. Almost all the movies made in Canada have some degree of government funding. And they're usually films that no one really sees or anybody cares about. I mean, in some cases, sadly. Yes. Yeah. And we'll get into that later. But we're after this. I'm li- sorry, I'm sounding so down on this topic because I have just watched two Paul Gross films today. I watched Hyena Road this morning, and then with Justin, I watched Men with Brooms for the second time in my life. <laughs> if you've ever wanted to see Will like sadder or more frustrated <laughs> and grumpier, then you just have to watch Men with Brooms. And earlier this week I saw Passiondale for get this, the third time in my life. Why have you seen so many Paul Gross movies? So some of these movies I saw the first time around when I was reviewing them for places. Passchendaele I saw because I had this column for the short-lived Onion AV Club Toronto where I wrote about Canadian blockbusters and like, you know, Red Green Stuck Tape Forever or <laughs> Passchendaele or I Men can't wait rooms. for the baffled expressions of people that do not live in Canada and are <laughs> saying all these things or like, what are they talking about? Guys, just write them down and go watch them all to get a real taste of what Canada is. Yeah, yeah. So getting into Paul Gross, for a first of any of the important cinema club, I'm going to read an encyclopedia oh, entry. Oh, That's so lazy. Okay, <laughs> Margaret went over here. It's from the Take One, the Central Guide to Canadian Cinema. And it says, come on, there's not that much about Paul Gross, so let's just get it off the, t- the top of okay. our head. He was an actor, writer, producer, Calgary, in 1959. <laughs> Wait, Gross is the current golden boy of Canadian television. By the age of 14, he was doing commercials to finance his drama studies at the University of Alberta. Okay. He worked the circuit of regional theaters while developing his writing abilities. Okay, but that doesn't matter. He that What matters is he was on a show called Due South where he played a Mountie. And this show became a... Would I say worldwide sensation? I guess Worldwide so. cult sensation. Mm-hmm. It was on the BBC and it was on uh, PBS probably. Yeah. And when people talk about Deuce House today, they go, oh yeah, that show that played back then. <laughs> <laughs> that have been ceremoniously dumped to DVD. We've all seen the picture of Paul Gross dressed as a Mountie. Yes. Paul Gross is, I mean, he's the biggest star that we have in Canada. That's insane. I think, like, I think that's true, right? As I said last week. I've, one of my fondest memories of anything I've ever read was the New York Times profile on Paul Gross when he was on Broadway, where it said, Gross, a huge star in his homeland, <laughs> which is true only if you count out all the American stars that we that we get here. But the thing is, like, if I asked my mother or father, do you know who Paul Gross is? There's no way they would know who he was. Not even from Due South? I don't or... think so. Yeah. I could probably be like, you remember Due South? And then go, oh yeah, that show was the Mountie? Like, that's as far as it's going to go. Okay. But Due South ran for four seasons. Like Will said, it was a huge hit. And it was, oh, by the way, for our American followers, it was created by Paul Haggis. Academy Award winner and ex-Scientologist. Yep. And from there, Paul Gross, I think probably the most noticeable thing he did was Slings and Arrows, a British-style miniseries that were three seasons of six episodes. Yeah, kind of a cult comedy Yeah, um, about with the Mark theater, McKinney. About the theater, and that Paul Gross in it is kind of playing Dylan Moran from Black Books. He's <laughs> acting like him, he looks like him. It's really odd. And at first I went, oh... It must have been just a coincidence. And I look, nope, Black Books came out two years before. <laughs> and this is a show that, like, whenever you want to badmouth Paul Gross, people will say, oh, but, hey, Slings and Arrows was good, which is kind of like when you badmouth Adam Sandler and they say, oh, but Punch Drunk Love was good. Or, like, you know, Happy Gilmore is really fun and Billy Madison. Yeah. And you're like, those movies were, like, 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's time to move on. But Paul Gross, it's interesting that he's our biggest star because he, he is 
ridiculously handsome mm-hmm. in kind of a Bruce Campbell sort of way. Now, Bruce Campbell never became a huge star, I think because he was too handsome almost. It's like he could, he could only be used, his face could only be used in an ironic context. But the thing is, I don't think the memo ever got to Canada ab- <laughs> about that. So people in the boardrooms of telefilm or whatever looked at Paul Gross and said, oh, he looks like a movie star. And if Paul Gross had come up in the studio system in the 40s, he would have probably been in hundreds of films. Oh, for sure. He is like the platonic ideal of a movie star. He looks like, uh, like I-, I don't know, Rock Hudson or something. <laughs> but instead, he uh, wrote, directed, and starred in a little movie called Men With Brooms. So after his TV career, he's directed three movies in Canada, all of which were like events in Canada and all of which in their own way try to be about Canada and about the Canadian identity. He took it upon himself to be Canada's cinematic chronicler, but not in like an arty way, more in kind of a populous way. way. Mm -hmm. And Men With Brooms was a film that if you did not grow up when this film was coming up, we cannot explain (laughs) how swarmed every version of media was with ads for men with brooms oh my god it was was everywhere everywhere. (laughs) every bus every tv station had ads every uh newspaper entertainment section had some think piece about well men with brooms and duct tape forever are coming out could this be the year that canadian film becomes popular hey did you hear that the canada appeared on the simpsons this could mean (laughs) big things for us hey conan o'brien did a week of shows in toronto Let's do front page coverage of it all week. (laughs) (laughs) And Men With Brooms, I feel like we don't have that much to say about it because it's really bad. Uh, What's it about? It's about a curling team that after their coach dies, come back to their little small town 10 years later and emotionally blackmailed by their dead coach to come back and play one last game of curling. Yeah, the dead coach has a video will where he tells them that they need to take part in some tournament. And in fact, his ashes have been put into the curling rock and they need to beat this this sinister team that doesn't... <laughs> Let's call them evil team, like yeah, in Shallon Soccer. They're an evil team that doesn't represent the values of curling. <laughs> And this film is, just like Score a Hockey Musical, from the first frame, incredibly pandering. Oh my god. Like, so, the opening scene is, like, a bunch of CGI beavers. (laughs) And they are kind of like this movie's answer to the Caddyshack gopher. I guess. (laughs) Sort of. They're more of, uh... Or the meaning of life fish. Yeah. They're really the thing tying it together. Yeah. We go into a film that as we'll see in a lot of Paul Gross's directorial efforts, is incredibly muddled. Uh, well, there's there's a lot going on in the plot of this. There are a lot of different subplots. Every, like, there, there are four or five members of this team, and they've all got wives or girlfriends. And there's Leslie Nielsen as the new coach. Who is who's, not funny, not making jokes. No, he, it's a serious dramatic performance from Leslie Nielsen for the most part. The, mo- the movie is, like, kind of a dramedy, I guess you would say. It has some very, like, aggressive, wacky moments, like people slipping on ice and... Uh, uh, jumping naked from a rock face in uh, the water. Oh yeah, you see Paul, Paul Gross's butt, by Hey, the it could have been a stunt butt. We don't know that. Jeez, I wonder. <laughs> Paul Gross, if you're listening, could you write in to the Important Cinema Club? At gmail.com and just, and just let us was know. Was that your butt? <laughs> and why was this movie made? Like, what audience do you think all these funding bodies were trying to capture? This movie has this, has the feel of, it was made in 2002 and it has 2002 all over it. It's like post there's something about Mary, post the water boy. I don't know. Somebody seemed to think, well, if we made kind of a middle of the road comedy of like the Fairley Brothers or Adam Sandler's level, point out we also, could do it as well as they could. I should point out also that 
there was a film that came out in Quebec in 97 called Le Boys, which was kind of like a bunch of ragtag guys come together and play hockey. And while it was critically massacred, it was a huge hit in Quebec. For many years, it was the highest grossing Canadian film of all time, I think. So I can feel Paul Gross probably going like, oh, let's take all this Canadian stuff. And yes, we hear a rockin' version of O Canada. Oh my God, with an electric guitar and stuff. <laughs> and this will make people want to come see this movie. Well, it has this weird weird relationship with the uh, stereotypes and cliches of Canada, right? Where mm-hmm. on some level it's like, haha, we're not just beavers and hockey pucks. But then on some other level, it's like, hey, we're Canadians. We're beavers and hockey pucks. Look at this beaver tattoo I have on me. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> this movie is not good. And let's move on from that. To- no, I, I kind of want to linger in just a little longer. <laughs> I was I was so bored. I also love how Paul Gross films himself for the whole movie. Like it's such a it he's such, such a, a cool vanity dude. project. He spends half the movie being being framed in medium long shot with his hands in his pockets like James Dean with a leather jacket. <laughs> you know what I'm gonna say? I am a Paul Gross the actor fan. Yeah, he's pretty good. I if he had more interesting projects that he could work in, I think I would be genuinely interested in watching him perform. You know what? I'll tell you about the the one time I met Paul Gross. Uh, I I think I was asking him some kind of high-minded question about, you know, uh, what, what would you do? You know, do you choose parts to represent Canada? Or, you know, some 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 pretentious question. He said, well, you know, the truth is I don't get offered a lot of parts. <laughs> Which probably says a lot of why he hasn't really traveled that much. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Paul Gross... I mean, Paul Gross has taken it upon himself to be the chronicler of Canada, but on some level, like there, probably there are only so many opportunities in the Canadian film industry to do interesting stuff at his level. And but he got a huge opportunity a few years later in um, 2008 when he made the most important Canadian film of all time, and that is Passchendaele. Now Passchendaele, okay. So if Men with Brooms was was kind of stuffed down our throats as, yeah, Canadian movies can be entertaining. This was released in theaters as if it was like... A holy event. Yeah, like, like a civic holiday. Like, like it, it's your duty to see this film. And the film is a telling of the World War I Battle of Passchendaele, which Canada had a big part in. So, yeah, um, in our history classes, one of the things we learned is that World War I was really the war where Canada became a nation. And reason- basically because all our people died in it. We were cannon fodder for the British. <laughs> and for people who know nothing about Canada, Canada is part of the British Empire, or it was. Yeah, and it's been slowly working its way The out. Queen is still on our fucking money! <laughs> Why is she still on our money? We had Confederation. Um, yes. Yeah, and in the 60s, we got our own flag. <laughs> flag before that no it was in the city i think uh was diefenbaker the prime minister i'm sorry i'm the worst canadian <laughs> yeah we're both the worst canadians <laughs> I, I wrote an essay about this when i was in undergrad i used to know and it just kind of went all out of your mind when you had to watch uh, men with brooms again <laughs> yeah. i i can't remember like the first 20 years of my life now the, the movie's just been hitting my head so hard <laughs> just like one of those hard curling rocks oh god i don't even want to think about it <laughs> all right so passchendaele was a blockbuster production in canada it cost $20 million. This was a passion project for Paul Gross, by the way. I remember reading this article in something like McLean's where he, it was talking about Paul Gross pitching this movie around that he thought could have been Canada's Gallipoli. Which was a Peter Weir film that starred Mel Gibson and was, I don't, the Battle of Gallipoli, I I'll take know. a guess. I've never yeah. seen it. But like, it, it could be it could be the kind of story that would 
put Canada's war story into the world and maybe even launch him as a Mel Gibson style international star. And the movie did not do that. Well, it cost $20 million. I should point out that Alberta put in $5.5 million. The province of Alberta, yes. And various other like, you know, boards of directors of banks and stuff put in money. Uh, So it cost $20 million. It made something like four or $5 million in Canada which was still enough to make it the highest grossing Canadian movie of the year. It actually won an award for that at the Genies that year. Oh yeah, we have an award. Uh, what's it called? The Golden Reel Award. For the highest grossing Canadian film. And most of, uh, in recent years, it's gone to such films as Resident Evil Apocalypse. Or Coroner Gas, the movie. <laughs> yeah, that one this year. <laughs> and Passchendaele, like I said, not a good movie. No, but you know, you know, but it's an ambitious film in a way that Men with Brooms is not. Uh, yeah, it's it's ambitious. I mean, it's it's half ambitious, half like pandering garbage. But I, think, I mean, I think it's good that a movie like this exists, uh, because you know, kids will get to watch it in history, and <laughs> you mean be forced to watch it in yeah, uh, history class. I, I assume that's. I, I I have to imagine this movie has to be in every grade ten history class now, <laughs> and. I don't know. I think it's, if we're teaching kids about history, that's good. But, you know, as people having to watch movies to enjoy them, bad. You know what? I had fun with this movie up to a certain point. The first 10 minutes is a very cheap looking battle that reminded me of the macaroni <laughs> combat films that Italy used to make, like Inglorious Bastards, the original, not the Quentin Tarantino version. So Paul Gross plays a war hero who is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, although he's wearing it pretty well, I think. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah, and so he comes back to Alberta where he encounters, is it his younger brother? No, it's, he encounters the nurse that helped him and her brother. Right, right. She's addicted to morphine. Yeah, and this kid has asthma, which means he can't go to fight, but he really wants to go out there and fight and kill some Germans. Also, their their parents were Germans. Also, the kid wants to do it because his girlfriend, who he wants to marry, her father will not accept him until he goes to war. Right. This is the convoluted nature of all the Paul Gross movies, where there's a million subplots that never come together. Uh, it's all so boring. Uh, <laughs> the, the movie, it wants to represent every point of view on the war. So if you think that war is hell, well, the movie will give you war being hell. It'll show you the horrors of trench warfare. And uh, there are so many scenes of Paul Gross telling the kid, oh, you're not going to find love in a battlefield or, you know, <laughs> whatever. But it also really puts forward, has scenes of Paul Gross talking about, yep, the Canadian Corps were the only ones who could push off the Germans, you know, uh, celebrating our heroic war victories. Uh, and there's there's a mustache-twirling villain like the uh, the army recruitment officer. Who gets brutally killed <laughs> yeah. later on in the movie and has his throat slit by a mortar mine. Who's trying to spread the rumor that uh, Paul Gross isn't really suffering from post-traumatic <laughs> stress disorder. The, the movie doesn't really get into... I think some of the interesting issues about the First World War, which is why was Canada even there? You know, what was the point of the First World War? Sorry, I don't want to offend anyone. Well, I think that (laughs) the movie's big problem is how muddled it is. Mm -hmm. Like, the film has no real momentum. Because you can break the film up into the prologue, Paul Gross in battle, and then a long section where he's home, he falls in love, the million other subplots introduced, and then a huge chunk at the end where it's just the Battle of Passchendaele. And there's no real kind of dramatic buildup or anything. Mm. It's just the battle happens. And it's all, the whole story is just all cliches, right? Yep. It's stuff we've seen a million times before, done better. But I, I, you know, cliches would be fine if I could get dramatically involved in them in any way. Yeah, I was watching these movies, I, I was watching his later film, Hyena Road, thinking... 
well, I, I've seen all of this before. Why did it work those times and I'm not feeling anything this time? Well, we have to remember that Passchendaele is fondly remembered for the final 10 minutes of the film. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, what happened in the final 10 minutes? So uh, the kid that Paul Gross is trying to protect at the Battle of Passchendaele uh, charges into the German uh, trenches, gets caught, and then a bomb goes off, which throws the kid up into the air into a cross? Yeah, so he looks like he's crucified, like a certain historical figure. <laughs> <laughs> Try to guess who it is. And then George Washington. And then Paul Gross has to save this kid by literally carrying the cross across the battlefield. But everybody stops. Everybody the Germans, stops. Germans, uh, uh, I guess I assume the Americans and the Canadians. Mm. No one is... Uh, the, the Germans look at him and go, yes, you could take him. So he grabs the body and he's like, I think he's like, nobody help me or something like that. Mm. And he just has to drag it himself. Yeah. Because he's, Cause he's a, a Christ-like figure. Yeah. He's paying for his sins for killing a blue-eyed German boy yes. in the first scene. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he dies because obviously he has hey, to. Hey, spoiler. <laughs> I think a lot of people out there listening to this are really interested in seeing Passchendaele and you just well, spoiled it. You should check it out. Go to any public library. They probably have four <laughs> copies. Go to uh, your local high school. Exactly. And just walk into a history class. Yeah. It's probably playing on. Just like the other movie that we watched, which was Hyena Road. Ugh. You have started every, uh, discri- uh, every discussion Road. with ugh. It's fine. This is uh, Canada's answer to American Sniper. Although, you know, I probably went into production before American Sniper. It's set in the Afghanistan conflict. And it's a little bit less uh, gung-ho than Passchendaele is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's very much about the uh, moral ambiguity of war. Although, again, it, it kind of doesn't want to offend anybody. The movie, at the end of the day, says war is bad and we should not be involved in the conflict here. You know, I feel like that's its final point sure. that it's trying to say. Sure. While at the same time showing how support our troops. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know, it's not their fault they're fighting this battle. Right. They're just there because they have to Although be. there is a scene where Paul Gross and another character are talking to each other and have this kind of like didactic conversation with each other. Paul Gross is like, uh, at the end of the day, only foreign policy will make a difference. Nothing we do here will. And then the other guy says, I can't think that way. If I if I put a bullet in a man's head, I have to believe it means something. Yeah, but that man who says that line is brutally killed at the end <laughs> yeah. for putting a bullet in someone's yeah. head. Yeah. So it's like Paul Gross going, yeah, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, sure. What is there to say about Hyena Road? It's a war film. I mean, it's cheap. It looks cheap. Do you want to do? Do we want to talk about Bring Me the Head of Tim Horton? Oh, uh, okay. So what is Bring Bring Me the Head of Tim Horton? This was uh, the short film that Guy Madden covered on a previous episode of this very podcast made while on the set of Hyena Road. Uh, I guess he was commissioned to make some sort of a making of documentary or just make some... I, well, they knew what they were going to get when they hired Guy Madden. Like, he, they were going to make... He wasn't going to make a straight head yeah. documentary. So he basically made a, a short film of filming himself wandering around the set lamenting about how... Uh, Paul Gross gets a much bigger budget than he does. And, and he can barely pay the rent. And, and, and it's like, I'm going to make my own morally ambiguous war film in the middle of this easily digestible one. Yeah. And and he was he was putting forward the thesis that, you know, the the fame, the old Francois Truffaut thesis that you can't depict war without making it seem exciting. Mm-hmm. And there he also scores. He takes some scenes of combat and scores them to like the sounds of hockey games to suggest that um, in a Canadian war film, if you shoot an Afghani or a Muslim, uh, it's we're to receive it the same way as scoring a goal in a hockey game and that both of them are supposed to be something that we're proud of on a nationalistic grounds. Hyena Road does present its combat scenes like, woo woo, 
action scenes. Or is it, there's mm. even like new metal in the background. Like, <laughs> I think the combat scenes in Hyena Road are not very good. Yeah, they're fine. It's like, it's, you know, it's so... Like, what is the geography well, of what's going on? Yeah, I, you can't follow them. And like the shaky cam is used in a way where I look at it and I think, oh, you think you're being Paul Greengrass. <laughs> and this is another film filled with a million subplots. Ugh. That none of them really pay off. The film's called Hyena Road, and they set up the whole plot with we're building this road through Afghanistan. Oh, and and the, and they're gonna pit these two like Afghani uh, figures against each other, and they'll kill each other, and then we'll be able to build this road. And but the road building has nothing to do with it. It never really plays into the Justin, plot. Justin, do you think the road could be a metaphor? Uh, yeah, I think so. Anyway, n- not worth lingering over. <laughs> nope, I, I don't really have. You know, it's funny that I actually don't have anything to say about Hyena Road, other than it was another. Big prestige picture. I think this one cost $15 million. I feel like this one didn't quite hit the zeitgeist the way that uh, Paul Gross's earlier ones did. Well, I mean, they didn't really. But but th- this movie, it, it came out, I think, during the last Canadian federal election mm-hmm. at a time when, you know, Stephen Harper and I guess the whole Afghan, Canada's participation in Afghanistan were becoming increasingly unpopular. So I don't know. There didn't seem, it seemed a more divisive film. And it was still a film that was heavily advertised. I remember there was a whole bunch of free screenings going on. Where it's yes. like, please come and see Hyena Road. <laughs> and it ended up making something like $400,000 at the box office. Oh, really? It was, it was a low amount. I don't remember the exact amount, but it wasn't even as much as Passchendaele made. You, by the way, this week saw another Paul Gross film, a film that he acted in called mm-hmm. Gunless. Yes. From the, the fastest gun in the North? <laughs> I, um... I was excited for this film. It was from a film directed by the guy who made Foolproof. Oh, great. Ryan Reynolds (laughs) starring Heist Comedy. Also, Genie nominee for Best Picture. For people who don't know what the Genies are, I'm going to get into a little bit later. They're the Canadian Academy Awards. And now they're the Canadian Screen Awards. Mm -hmm. And so Gunless is a beautiful looking film. It actually looks really good. But it's also everything that is not good about Canadian cinema in there. It's very quaint. Nothing really happens. It's another film about nonviolence, just like Score a Hockey Musical. <laughs> because what else can Canada be about? Did you see Gunless? Uh, yes, I did. I, and I remember nothing of it. <laughs> I mean, that makes complete sense. Because it's a film that almost feels like it's afraid to step on any toes. I remember it opened a week before Iron Man 2, <laughs> which was a great idea. And all the ads made it look like this crazy broad comedy, and it's not. It's very underplayed, and I would not recommend it. My pal Alan Jones wrote a good article for Maisonneuve called uh, Hosers and War about the cinematic goober Paul Gross, where he said, Paul Gross is that most Canadian phenomena, a populist artist without any popularity. And he, and he put forward the theory that the problem with Canada as a nation is we don't have any great founding myths, and we don't have a great sense of community because we're spread out so far. You know, even the stereotypes that we think about Canada, like Bob and Doug McKenzie stuff, uh, they're becoming increasingly irrelevant since everything's becoming so much more globalized. So these Paul Gross movies, the only thing when they're trying to create something distinctly Canadian, all they really have to fall on is the fact that, well, we like to we like hockey and uh, beavers and beavers and when we're when we're in a a war situation or a hockey team, we're like brothers. Um, and we like to think that we're a little bit better than Americans, but we also crave their approval. But then again, I feel bad saying that because the best Canadian movies, like Guy Madden, I think is like quintessentially Canadian. He, he hits something much more deeper in Canada than Paul Gross does. 
what is like a Canadian film? Like that's a question that we keep asking ourselves. And how, as a country, do we make movies that people who live in Canada or even people that live outside of Canada want to see? We didn't really talk about it, but Quebec has a great um, film industry. Mm -hmm. They have their own star system, mm -hmm. which is something that we don't have in the rest of Canada. Mm -hmm. And that's arguable that, you know, well, they're an isolated province they have their own language so that's why, why they want to go see those movies it could also be linked to the fact that you know canada doesn't really make that many interesting films anymore well i mean i think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening kind of in the low budget or the micro budget realm i mean we mentioned those like toronto diy filmmakers uh the movies they make seem much more maybe toronto specific than they are canada specific mm -hmm. like teddy bomb by like director teddy justin bomb. DeClue. yeah Another young up-and-comer. Uh, I, I don't know, but it feels like Canada should be making more movies. And this is something that... What do you want to see from Canada? Uh, I would want to see just interesting, passionate films by filmmakers who are given enough money to be able to attain the vision they want to, mm -hmm. they want to have. The thing is that it feels like a lot of these funding bodies, the decision they made was, we need to be as good as American films. Mm -hmm. And let's dig in our, in our heels and invest as much money as we can. And what they should be doing is, they shouldn't be giving $20 million to Passchendaele. They should be taking like $2 million projects and having these people go off be passionate about it and making something. Then you may get a whole bunch of stinkers, but you also get one or two that are really good. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the logic behind um, the Hollywood studio system right now, which is let's put $250 million in a film instead of making a bunch of littler films. Maybe they'll hit, maybe they won't. Like Blumhouse in the States is, that's their model. They make like the paranormal activity films and yeah. stuff like that, where they're like, let's make a bunch of little films. If it fails, it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, I know that a lot of the young filmmakers these days have a hard time getting into telefilm just because the system is they regard the system as being so ossified that if it's like one of the one of the big name kind of mid-career Canadian auteurs that you know, they'll have a much easier time going through because they're a known commodity than it, a younger filmmaker. It comes down to like being able to write grants and not being able to write grants <laughs> and the people who can write grants get all the money. And it, you know, I don't know anybody that works on the telefilm board or any of the other funding bodies. But from the output that they put out, it looks like they're like, oh, we've done this person. Let's just give him money. And the thing is, these Canadian films are failing. Uh -huh. Like, they're not hits, are they? I don't think so. I mean, the other thing that's hard, too, is there's just a general, there's a massive sea change happening in the film industry anyway, where, so let's say you make a movie like Men With Brooms that's basically trying to mimic an American romantic comedy. I mean, they're not even really making a lot of American romantic comedies anymore because it's hard to make it profitable. People are streaming movies more than anything now. It seems like if you look at the top 10 box office movies of the week, it's either huge superhero movies or Christian movies. But that's also considering it from a financial level. Mm -hmm. And because these are all government funded projects... Mm -hmm. They shouldn't have to be financially successful. I think what's probably sure. more important is that they're just interesting. Sure. I mean, I would love to see... I mean, it's hard, I think, for us to even access the history of Canadian film. We were talking about how hard it is to find even somebody like Norman McLaren, mm -hmm. uh, who is such an acclaimed Canadian animator and who and quite an accessible filmmaker, I think. Uh, but his films are so difficult to find. Like, I was looking at the um, filmmaker who made Going Down the Road, mm -hmm. which is one of the famous Canadian films. Yes. That's one that's easily accessible. The third film he made, Between Friends, which is a heist mm -hmm. film with Michael Parks, is not available anywhere. Mm -hmm. Not on VHS, not on DVD, nowhere. Yeah, I don't know. It'd be nice if some of that stuff could, like, just 
show up on Netflix. Or, you know, it'd be nice if some of this stuff could get shown more on CBC TV instead of like fucking Murdoch mysteries or whatever. <laughs> so I think that it's a mixture of, I mean, the future of Canadian cinema, they should be kind of diverging their interests. And I'm not the first person to say that. A million people have said that. Uh -huh. And the people in power are probably like, well, that sounds like a lot of work. I'd rather do uh -huh. what we're doing right now than all these other littler projects. Sure. You know what? I'm tired of seeing all my tax money used by these big government spending agencies. I, I as, a, as a proud libertarian, I say you should fund it yourself. <laughs> this is the confusion that comes <laughs> at this time is that Everyone goes, oh, but anybody can make a movie. You just take $100, a camera, and a few friends. I mean, yeah, you can, but it's still fucking hard, and you still need money. Uh -huh. So, I mean, there's probably more people that want to be filmmakers than ever because it seems more accessible, but they still need the funding to be able to have those projects. So, in other words, give some money to Justin the Clue. I gave to your Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> you and did. I'm, and I'm still waiting for, for this movie that is allegedly being made. <laughs> All right, it was all a tax shelter scam. Hey, I bet somewhere uh, in the telefilm offices, somebody's having a meeting right now about how can we do a Canadian Marvel Cinematic Universe. Guaranteed. So, so what was it, Captain Canuck? Yep, Ca Johnny Canuck, I think. Johnny, Johnny Canuck, uh, uh, Nelvina of the Northern Lights. They're trying to figure out how can we do this for under $15 million. <laughs> well, I have the answer for them. You hire Justin DeClue <laughs> and Will Sloan to write. And you yeah. got yourself a hit on your hands. Sounds good. At the same time, they should bring back that's what happened in the 70s and early 80s, which was the tax shelter years. Oh, yeah. Well, that was, I mean, one of my favorite eras of Canadian film when, you know, so many, so much garbage was made. I mean, we, <laughs> would we have David Cronenberg if the tax shelter years didn't exist? Maybe not. Because for people who don't know what it was, from the period of 1974 to 1982, if you invested in a Canadian film, those investments would be covered, would be deductible up to 100%. Oh, nice. So, of course, people would invest in films because they wouldn't have to pay any taxes. So we got great movies like Sexkilla. <laughs> yes. And uh, I think, was Porky's not a Canadian tax shelter film? Um, perhaps, but it was also the most successful Canadian film of all time. Yeah. I think I don't know if it's been... I think Bon Cop, Bad Cop might have dethroned it, at least in Canada. And how can we have a discussion about Canadian films without <laughs> talking about Bon Cop, Bad Cop? Here's the thing. How it, we just heard this week they got financing for a sequel. How did it take a decade? <laughs> the most successful Canadian film ever. This is how how dumb our country is. <laughs> is Bon Cop Bad Cop, which is a buddy cop movie that was fine. Yeah, that's all right. It wasn't bad. Yeah, like, it was okay. It got the job done. I liked it better than Men with Brooms, and it was huge. And then it took a decade to get funding again. The buddy cop thing, it was like Rush Hour, except that uh, the fastest fists in the East was a Qu Quebec cop and the fastest uh, mouth in the West was uh, <laughs> an Ontario cop. Played by Shakespearean actor Colin Fiore. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, I, I mean, this should be a case study in film school of like, what is going on with Canadian financing if they can't get the money to invest in the most successful film that the country has ever had? If you know, write into us at... Uh, <laughs> ImportantCinemaClub <laughs> at gmail.com. Oh, in fact, we actually have a letter. Oh my God. Which is... Kinda, is it my mom? <laughs> is it, it's kind of from the future because he's commenting on the episode we just did. Uh... This Canadian episode? Yes. Well, we I guess we announced it last time. We did. And it's from famed Toronto programmer of the Laser Blast Film Society. Sorry. Co-presenter of the Laser Blast Film Society, Peter Kaplowski. Oh, nice. And he has to say, hey, important cinema dudes. That's us. So I was... 
wikiing around the web. That's something the kids use. Wikiing around the web? Yeah. And I came across the Deuce House page and noticed that Paul Gross's character is named Benton Fraser. Benton Fraser uh, is a modern-day Dudley Do-Right. Who played the modern-day Dudley Do-Right in the live-action adaptation of the cartoon series? Brendan Fraser. Benton Fraser, Brendan Fraser. Did everyone already know this? Did it inspire a Toronto Star Entertainment section <laughs> upon the news of Brendan Fraser's casting as Dudley Do-Right? I have a feeling that when Brendan Fraser was cast in Dudley Do-Right, there's the, probably the whole entertainment section of the yeah, Toronto probably. Star. Um, did it inform the casting? Either way, my mind is kind of blown. This world sure is wild and half insane. Well, thank you, Peter, for writing in with that very Flophouse-esque letter. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of a loose change-style scenario, isn't it? <laughs> Where... that, that is interesting that he was... Uh... Actually, is it interesting? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that Dudley Do-Right? That weird uh, duology... They, they, were, they are both Mounties, right? Dudley Do-Right's a Mountie, isn't he? is he? a Mountie, yes. Yeah. Um, but it's from, for people who don't know, the Brendan Fraser uh, duology of George of the Jungle and Dudley Do-Right... <laughs> That, and if Dudley Do-Right had been a bigger hit, we could have got more in from the J. Ward cinematic universe. <laughs> All right. So we should end this episode because we basically... We're not talking more about that letter. <laughs> what else do we have to say? <laughs> no, go ahead. No, no, no. We have... We don't want to scare people. So maybe we should give them a thanks for sending a letter, oh, yeah, Peter. No, it was, it was a good letter. It was a good letter. I'm only I'm writing only on him because I know him. Yeah, exactly. We should end this podcast with... Because we've been shitting on Canadian cinema for what oh, feels like an hour. I love Canadian cinema, though. Like, there are so many great Canadian movies. Uh, well, the one I just saw last week, Nobody Wave Goodbye. Uh, a film directed by Don Owen, like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Some of the recent ones I've liked have included Tower and Sleeping Giant mm -hmm. and How Heavy This Hammer. Uh, some of, you know, there, there are your classics, your sweet hereafters, your saddest musics in the world, your dead ringers. I mean, those are all the ones that like a lot of people know, like David Cronenberg mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But like we were saying before, there's so many good ones, ones that were nominated for the Canadian Academy Award, the genies mm -hmm. that are not available. And there's so much more out there that people are just not watching. Like the very well-regarded Quebec film Night Zoo. I've heard The Mermaid singing. And Trister. Or a little scene heist film called Blind Trust, which plays out like a proto-Wesvar dogs with a dash of the Coen's brother style. Or you could even dive into the filmographies of directors like William Fruitt, who started writing scripts for some of the best-known Canadian films of all time, like Going Down the Road, before making his own arty de directorial debut with Wedding in White, and then falling into the tax shelter ghetto where he still delivered some genuinely solid genre films like Death Weekend. There's just so much out there that no one is seeking out because they aren't even aware that it's out there at all. Meatballs. <laughs> Meatballs 2. Meatballs 3. Meatballs Back 4 with Corey Feldman. The greatest of all the meatballs. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like, there's a film that we showed at Laser Blast uh, called Siege, which is a little genre picture. It's kind of like Assault on Precinct 13 in an apartment block. Great movie. It's really good. And you know what? I saw I saw this movie at your Laser Blast screening. I think we all went to laugh. Like, we're mm -hmm. all like, oh, yeah, cheesy movie. Let's laugh. We were so sucked into that movie. <laughs> it is so good. And it's not available anywhere. Yeah, it's too bad. Like, where is this, like, Criterion collection of canadian films yeah probably not siege <laughs> <laughs> no but you know criterion can put out like uh, the brain that wouldn't die i would love or to see norman mclaren get a box set the way stan brackage has a box set well maybe nfb has put you know what i bet nfb has put it put it out but it's just not available enough yeah. in the sense that like people don't know about it yeah 
So if we have anything about this podcast other than laughing with Paul Gross, <laughs> it should be that to go seek out these Canadian films and then just keep talking about them and letting people know about it. Because if you know about the past, the Canadian films in the future can be that much better. Yeah. All right. What are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we're, we are uh, doing something a little different. We're uh, getting outside of our auteur bias, mm-hmm. such great auteurs as Paul Gross. <laughs> Which we should point out was brought up as a joke when we were pitching names around. And then and it, you, just, it just, you know, it just festered in my mind. Was I the one who raised it as a joke? That I, no, like, I did. I did. I said, let's uh, do a Paul Gross episode. Okay, because I don't want one of any our blame for this. Because um, one of our friends on the on Twitter said that Paul Gross's film Hyena Road was on his top 10 list of, of the year. Oh, that, yeah. And that that's what started this whole I think he's trolling us a little bit. <laughs> I don't think so. I think he's very honest. And I'm sure he'll listen to this podcast and he will comment on that fact. Okay. Uh, write us a letter into Oh, yeah, we'll Cinema read Cinema. it and I won't make fun of him like I made fun of Peter. <laughs> so anyway, we're 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 veering from our tour bias and we're going to explore the work of canonical film critic Pauline Kale. hmm Where when you say film criticism, I say Roger, Roger Ebert, Ebert. <laughs> and then after that, you say Pauline Kael. Right. I mean, sorry, Richard Roper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lights, Camera, Jackson, and Fiorma Stracci. Did you hear Lights, Camera, Jackson is going to get into more political stuff? Oh, I, feel it. I love it. Oh, just pump that shit right in my veins. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Pauline Kael. We're not going to pick any specific movies that we're going to talk about, but we're going to talk about specific texts. So we're going to talk about like her famous essays, Circles and Squares, uh, Trash Art in the Movies, Why Are the Movies So Bad? Uh, should we talk, talk about Raisin and Cain? We'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to read all of it. It's actually a pretty long one. So. Sure. And then, and then I know, the Bonnie and Clyde review. Yeah, exactly. When, and we'll talk about our own favorites. So we're really going to talk about criticism and we're finally, for the first time in human history, break down what it really means to be a critic. We're going to talk about how we don't need movie critics because... <laughs> All I need is the opinion of my friends. Exactly. And and who fi- made them a so-called expert? <laughs> and film critics don't give their real opinion because they see those movies for free. But thank you, Kevin Smith. <laughs> All right. My name is Justin DeClue. My name's Will Sloan. <laughs> Thanks for listening. All right. So we can't do this podcast without talking about Score, a hockey musical. Great film. <laughs> really? Uh, no. Did you see it in theaters when it came out? I saw it at a press screening for the Toronto Film Festival because, if you will recall, it was the opening night <laughs> film at TIFF. Well, it was a big production, man. It's tells, it says a story about Canada. I mean, the film starts with the Canadian National Anthem. Um, I was... I hate that because it's like it's implicating me in the movie somehow. Like, hey, you're Canadians, right? You'll like this. I mean, the final song is talks about how hockey is the greatest sport and how in the land. we're proud Canadians. It keeps saying over and over again, we are proud Canadians. Hockey's in our DNA. And I've never understood why, first of all, Canadians as a nation feel the need to constantly assert how proud they are being Canadian. <laughs> And I had never been less proud to be a Canadian than I was watching that song. For anyone who doesn't know what the movie is about, it's about a kid who was homeschooled that plays hockey with his friends, who is seen by a scout and joins like a minor hockey league of some sort and becomes a huge star. He becomes an overnight sensation, but he won't uh, do any violence in the game. He won't check people into the boards and stuff. So he becomes a very contentious, controversial figure on the ice. And that's all the movie is about. The whole dramatic 
plot of the film is that the main character will not fight. So the stakes are, are low. Yeah, very low. And I, for one, have no sympathy with his plight. Because, no, who cares? Yeah, it, first of all, like, it's hockey. Like, understand what game you're going into. <laughs> and secondly, you're, you're wearing, like, $100, or sorry, hundreds of dollars worth of equipment, okay? Yes. Like, you're probably not going to get hurt unless... It's the idea of what he's doing that's the problem, not the act itself. And the movie is packed with songs, and they're awful. Oh, terrible. There's this, uh, there are certain lyrics in in this movie that are just like branded in my memory. There was one where it's uh, uh, hockey without violence. It's like craft dinner without cheese. It's still pasta, but the palate, it won't please. The lyrics are so so tortured (laughs) and like forced into it that I cannot imagine being on set and watching these actors try to sing these songs. You've lived a sheltered life from what I can surmise, (laughs) but on the ice... The rules don't apply. Oh my God, it hurts. It how, physically hurts. How did you like Walter Gretzky's cameo? Walter Gretzky <laughs> is presented as if he's a ghost. So so during his hour of need, Farley Gordon, the, the star of the film, is sort of skating around the ice saying to himself about how sad it is that nobody likes him. And then the ghost of Walter Gretzky appears and talk sings a line. And then the ghosts of many, many hockey players also appear on the ice, but the only one we see is Teal Flurry, which makes me think that clearly they asked every hockey player to do a cameo and only Teal Flurry and Walter Gretzky. Agreed. I don't even know who Teal Flurry is. I'm going to be honest, not a big hockey fan. Uh, I only know Teal Flurry because I looked up his name after I saw this movie. <laughs> and you want to be like, who is this person? Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that, the film begs the question, who is this for? It was for the uh, telefilm executives who heard score, a hockey musical. This is great. We're like, we'll cash in on the Glee phenomenon. And oh, you think that's what it is? I, I guarantee, yeah. Oh, I. you know what? The songs do have that kind of Glee-ish, barely any kind of instrument uh, instrumentation. Yeah, really half-assed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This movie is terrible. I also liked, uh, I mean, there's just so much about the movie that's bad, but I especially like the Italian singing instructor in the <laughs> film. Uh, the the Mamma Mia, you know, just total stereotype. But don't you think this is something to be commended? It's a passion no, project boo, by a no, writer, director, no, producer? No. Well, it's a passion project, but like for the most cynical <laughs> reasons. Like it's a writer, this guy who did that Joshua Jackson. One uh, week. Yeah, one week, mm. that thing. Like this is a guy who's made it his mission to make populist, quote unquote, Canadian films. I remember you saying that there was an interview with him where he said, I want the finale of Score the Hockey Musical to be shown at hockey games for, like, the next decade. Did I say that? Yeah, you did. I can't remember that, but... <laughs> that is not good. Yeah, it's terrible. And, and yeah, uh, it, I don't know. There's nothing else to say. <laughs> There's nothing else to say about Score the Hockey it's Musical. Well, garbage. you can check it out when me and Will write our uh, little essay book on Score a Hockey Musical. <laughs> Our BFI film classics volume. It's going to be called Hat Trick, because by that point, there'll probably be three of them. I remember it was such a huge hit. Yeah, I remember seeing it at TIFF and then thinking, oh, this is so embarrassing. It's opening night film, so Americans might see it. 